is David Weiss for the Daily Worker Placement, and you're listening to The Game Changers, Episode 12, A New Rogues Gallery, Part 2. In Part 1, we began our all-too-brief survey of the current state of tabletop in Europe, focusing on three national schools of neurogame design, Polish, Italian, and Portuguese. Now, we return to the very cradle of modern tabletop, Germany, to look at four of the most prominent designers who are pushing the envelope of what board games can do. Once again, for reasons of time, I've had to stay laser-focused on just four out of the dozens of talented current German designers. But, by dint of the quality and quantity of their designs throughout the 2010s, I think they embody the neurogame aesthetic better than most. They all have hallmarks of a personal style, but are all also very versatile in their choices of themes and mechanics. The first to appear on the scene was Stefan Feld. Feld would become known for his deft combination and manipulation of game mechanics. In an interview with the website Opinionated Gamers, he admitted that he worked almost exclusively in the abstract world of mechanics, with theme entering into the consideration late in the process. His 2007 games, Year of the Dragon and Notre Dame, both looked like what would become to known as the Feldian style. Action selection, variable player order, and a point-salad, many-paths-to-victory approach. In Year of the Dragon, players drafted actions every turn from a randomly dealt set, following up by adding one villager to one of their palaces. Villagers also determined the power of different actions as well as turn order, and players had to plan ahead to stave off upcoming calamities like disease and famine. In Notre Dame, players pass-drafted action cards and paid for the services of different persons available each turn as they raced to accumulate prestige, i.e. victory points, in many different ways, while also keeping things like plague at bay. Feld continued to work permutations of this formula in 2009's Macau, which used a dice-drafting system to power player actions, as well as a turn-order track which came to be known as the Feldian Wall. This design approach arguably reached its peak with 2011's The Castles of Burgundy, which has proved one of his most popular and successful designs, spawning not only multiple mini-expansions and variants, but also a card game, a dice game, and a digital port to iOS. Not to mention, last year, a release of a deluxe edition with all the mini-expansions included. In 2010... Feld began what came to be a trilogy of auction bidding games with Der Speicherstadt and continued with 2012 Strasbourg and 2013's Rialto. In Der Speicherstadt, players earned the right to bid money for ownership of trade cards every round by placing workers on tracks corresponding to each of the randomly dealt cards up for auction. The trade card deck was composed of ships that carried goods, which could be used to fulfill contracts, buildings with special powers, and four fire cards, which forced the player who had the fewest firefighters to lose points. In Strasbourg and Rialto, players used cards instead of coins to bid, but in each case, the cards had different uses. In Strasbourg, 
the cards acted as a proxy currency, as players bid for places on guild councils, goods, and positions in the city. In Rialto, cards represented the actions themselves, and players bid for each action every round. The more you bid, the more powerful the action, with the winning bidder getting a bonus. As the 2010s continued, so did Feld, releasing game after game. Trajan, Amerigo, Bruges, Aquasphere, Carpe Diem. All excellent games, all with themes more or less painted on. Only three times so far in his career has Feld released games, from what I can see, where theme was more integrated with the design. 2010's Luna, a game incorporating rondelle-like worker placement with a druidic setting. 2016's The Oracle of Delphi, a racing game of all things set in the world of ancient Greece. And 2019's The Revolution of 1828, a two-player political game about the American presidential election of that year, with obvious contemporary overtones. In all, Fell to me is like a Bruno Mars or Janelle Monet, a classicist with a clear love for the history and traditions of their form, and the talent to draw on any part of it, but sometimes accused unjustly in my opinion, of being too facile and crossing the line between homage and copycat. Next up is Matthias Kramer, whose specialty is economic games, but who's often branched out of that comfort zone. His 2010 game Glenmore was an immediate success for Alea Ravensburger. Glenmore used a rondelle-like track both for timekeeping and as a way for players to draft and place tiles, and combined that with resource production and engine building to produce an elegant and tight game whose ongoing popularity is evidenced by its reissue in 2019 with eight, count them, eight expansions included in the box. After putting out the War of the Roses-themed Lancaster and the economic and marriage-themed game Helvetia in 2011, Kramer's 2013 game Rococo was another masterpiece mixture, with deck building, action selection, and more resource management all brought to bear for a game about designing and sewing dresses for the court of Louis XV. Once again, a deluxe version of Rococo has been brought out to satisfy fans who want to go all out for the dressmaking. 2015 saw Kramer release Kraftwagen, set in the 1920s and 1930s in Germany, where players researched and invested for their startup automobile companies, using a Glenmore-like rondelle system as an action selection mechanism. Then, in 2019, Capstone Games, an up-and-coming publisher from Ohio specializing in train games, published Kramer's latest game, Watergate, Quite a departure for him in that it was A, politically themed, B, for two players only, and C, did not use a rondelle. Watergate was one of my top games of 2019, a tense back-and-forth battle between the Washington Post player, who was literally trying to connect the president to the Watergate break-in using an innovative connection minigame, and the Nixon player, who works to stay ahead of the growing scandal and maintain his election momentum. The rulebook had extensive historical notes, thus serving as an excellent introduction to what, until recently, was the biggest political scandal in American history. To me, Kramer doesn't have a unique style. Indeed, it was only when it came time to write this episode that I found out that he had designed all of these games. 
He's a chameleon, like director Danny Boyle, whose filmography includes movies as different as Trainspotting, Slumdog Millionaire, and 127 Days. Both work at the service of the material and the story they're trying to tell. They don't need to impose an overarching personal vision. Our third German designer is one who may, in my opinion, end up as the most influential designer of the next decade, Alexander Pfister. Strictly speaking, he's Austrian and currently lives in Vienna, but we won't let a little thing like that get in the way of a conceptual framework, will we? Pfister's first big design was with Z-Man Games for 2010's The Mines of Zavendor, which was a middleweight Euro, but it was actually 2014's Port Royal, a pirate-themed card game, which first brought him to my attention. Port Royal's clever mix of push-your-luck and tableau building was elegant and fun. And the next two years saw the release of five very different Pfister games. Broom Service, Mombasa, Isle of Sky, Great Western Tale and Oh My Goods. The first three were merely really good. The first, Broom Service, was a re-implementation of a 2008 Alia Ravensburger game called Witch's Brew by a different designer. Mombasa, the second, was a medium-heavy Euro with share trading and simultaneous action selection. Isle of Sky was the third, and added a clever auction mechanic to Carcassonne-like tiling. The last two were more than really good. Great Western Trail was an Italian school design combining deck building, a tech tree, action-based buildings, and set collection into a heady mixture that catapulted it into the BGG Top 10, where it remains today. My first reaction to Great Western Trail was that it was overstuffed, a hat on a hat, and thematically all over the place. I mean, were the players cowboys, property owners, or railroad builders? But I have grown to appreciate it for how it all comes together. There's no question that Pfister knows how to create a cohesive design with many interlocking pieces. But to me, it's the fifth game, Oh My Goods, a cards-only economic engine game with a unique push-your-luck production mechanism, which laid the ground for Pfister's later pioneering work. In and of itself, it was a marvel, a complete and engrossing game experience using only a large deck of cards. Definitely a TARDIS game, a category I defined in episode 10 to describe games like Glory to Rome and Scott Almay's Tiny Epic series of games that looked small, came in small boxes, but were bigger on the inside. So on its own, Oh My Goods would be a career highlight as it is. But then in 2016, Pfister released an expansion, Longsdale in Revolt, and turned what had been a normal one-off competitive game into a cooperative game with five chapters and a branching narrative. Now players weren't vying to be the richest in the land. They were working together to, among other things, build forts to protect the kingdom and fight off marauding bandits. To my knowledge, no one had created a campaign-driven legacy-ish Euro before this. Pfister continued the story with 2017's expansion Escape to Canyonbrook, and then ported the whole Oh My Good system and story to a full tabletop experience in 2019's Escape to Newdale. 
Pfister continued to push the envelope of what a campaign-driven euro could look like with 2018's blackout in Hong Kong and 2019's Maracaibo, both of which had excellent regular gameplay as well as scenario-based campaigns. Now, Obviously, Fister wasn't the first to create a tabletop game with a campaign mode. As we saw last episode, that goes back at least as far as 2011's Risk Legacy. And several Uwe Rosenberg games, including Agricola, included solo campaign modes where players progressed from game to game. And to be honest, the actual storyline in Oh My Goods and Expedition to Newdale aren't really that compelling. The choices aren't all that consequential. They're more like excuses for the different setups and uh, arrangements which make each chapter a different play experience. In fact, the rules come right out and say that each chapter can be played independently. But that's beside the point. The importance of these games lies in pointing the way to a whole new level of tabletop storytelling in a Euro context. Fister, to me, is like film producer Edwin S. Porter, whose 1903 The Great Train Robbery was definitely not the first moving picture that told a story, or even a good story, but it pioneered many film storytelling techniques such as using a moving camera, combining studio footage with outdoor scenes and action, and cuts between scenes that implied simultaneous action. The development of this vocabulary showed the way for others like D.W. Griffith and Erich von Stroheim, who used Porter's methods to tell much richer and complex stories, such as intolerance and greed. In the same way, Pfister, in my eyes, is the first designer to attempt to impose a narrative on a Euro-style game, and so, even though he hasn't yet succeeded in making that narrative compelling, doesn't invalidate his achievement. But as potentially influential as the Longsdale Revolt and Escape to Canyonbrook might prove to be, I didn't choose it as my 11th game changer. I was so tempted to just let there be a tie for the 11th game changer, but I decided in the end that would be cheating. So, in the end, there is another designer from Germany, okay, Austria, whose game has had a more tangible and game-changing effect. And that designer is Wolfgang Warsch. Like Rainer Knizia, Warsch has a considerable academic background. In fact, his LinkedIn profile lists him as a senior postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of Pharmacology and Toxicology at the University of Veterinary Medicine in Vienna. Not a mention at all about his board games. In an interview with the Opinionated Gamers blog in 2018, Varsh claims that he had little interest in board games at all growing up. Then at the age of 19, he bought an old billiards table hoping to fix it up and suddenly had an idea for a board game using billiard mechanics? which turned out to be a complete non-starter. Until 2012, he claims he hadn't played any modern board games aside from Catan and Dominion. At that point, he decided to have another go at designing a game and came up with a team-based word-guessing party game called Dream Team, which was published by Zoch Verlag in 2015, but attracted very little attention outside Germany. Walsh then moved to Cambridge, England to do his postdoc work in medical research, and it was then that he started hanging out with real tabletop fans and becoming immersed in modern tabletop design. 
After finishing his postdoc, he moved back to Vienna and befriended none other than fellow Austrian Alexander Pfister, who, as we had seen, had already begun making his mark by that point. Pfister invited Varsh to join his weekly game designer meetings, and this turbocharged Varsh's imagination and creativity so much that within two years of joining, he had designed and developed four games, which were released in 2018. Two of the games were card games. Illusion borrowed, either intentionally or unintentionally, a mechanic from a well-established series designed by Frédéric Henry called Timeline, in which players attempted to place historical events in chronological sequence. In Illusion, it was the amount of a specified color, and not events, that players had to put in sequence. The second card game was more innovative. The Mind was a cooperative game with video game-ish tropes using a deck numbered 1 to 100 played over a series of rounds. The objective for each round was for all the players to empty their hands by collectively playing their cards in real time, i.e. no set turns, into a central pile in increasing order. The twist was that absolutely no talking was allowed. Players had to silently time their plays and push their luck to get the job done. Starting with one card each in the first round, the number of cards dealt out to each player increased with every round. The group started with three lives. Mistakes in play cost a life, but reaching certain levels earned lives back. The Mind proved a hit on the convention circuit in 2018 and has spawned several sequels and imitators. Varsha's third game of 2018 was The Quacks of Quedlinburg, a push-your-luck bag builder with players taking the role of potion brewers competing to concoct the most powerful elixirs over nine rounds. The most traditionally Euroish of the quartet, Quacks swept up many awards in 2018 and 2019, culminating in winning the Kennerspiel des Jahres that year for the best gamer's game. The fourth game of Warsha's Honest Mirabilis had its origins at the Nuremberg Toy Fair in 2017, where Varsh met Thorstein Gimler, designer of the classic game No Thanks, among others. And as often happens at tabletop conventions, they sat down to talk shop and play some games. Gimler introduced Varsh to a new game called Nochmal, which means one more time, designed by the veteran team of Inca and Marcus Brand. In Nochmal, Players took turns rolling six dice, then chose two of them to use for themselves, leaving the rest for everyone else to use for better or usually for worse. Using the dice to fill in regions of their multicolored score sheets, players raced to complete columns, cover up starred boxes, and fill in all regions of individual colors before the end of the game. Nochmal was not a totally groundbreaking design. For a few years now, designers had begun to put a modern tabletop spin on the basic mechanics of Yahtzee, which you'll recall from episode 8 had been invented by a Canadian couple, their names lost to history. As far back as 2007, Klaus Teuber had released Catan the Dice Game, initiating a mini-craze for dice-driven versions of franchise hits such as Ticket to Ride, Alhambra, and even Risk. And because dice were components everyone owned, many indie designers took up the challenge of developing dice-driven games, some of which, like Utopia Engine, are still popular and available. 
But in the early 2010s, these dice-driven games began to mutate. Designers began to layer on extra mechanics, both to how the dice results could be manipulated and how they were to be used to move gameplay forward. Instead of being just used to fill in a line on a score sheet or tick off a box for bonuses, these newer games, such as Rolling Japan and Saint Malo, had players use the dice results to draw or add things to a map or a diagram. On September 5th, 2016, BGG user Ori of Talion posted a geek list with the title Roll and Write Games which is the earliest citation I could find for this term which has come to describe this old but new tabletop genre. But back to Nuremberg. Walsh very much enjoyed Nochmal. Gimler, whose company Schmitzspiele had published it, said he was looking for a follow-up. Walsh had already designed a couple of dice-driven games that had never got past the prototype stage, where players rolled dice, picked one, and removed all the others showing lower values. He'd also just played Phil Walker Harding's 2016 game Imhotep, where the monuments being constructed each involved a different building mechanic or minigame. Walsh went home from Nuremberg and decided to see if he could combine the roll-and-remove-dice mechanic with Imhotep's minigames, and very quickly came up with a game he called Dice Farmers, which used colored dice, each of which scored in a different way, as well as a separate scoring area on a silver platter, which depended on the dice players rejected during their turn. Over the next few weeks, he added the idea of bonuses, which let players re-roll, reuse, and rescue dice from the platter. Walsh showed the final prototype to Gimler, who liked it very much, but told Walsh it was a bit too complex. So Walsh cut out the die-rescuing mechanic and rebalanced the scoring areas. And finally, they decided to lose the theme, which was thinly pasted on in the first place, and ended up with Ganz Schön Clever this episode's game-changer. Even though Nochmal and earlier designs actually pioneered the roll-and-write genre, it was for various reasons Ganschen Clever that I believe really put it on the map. In fact, Nochmal remained unavailable in English until after Ganschen Clever had been released in North America. Perhaps it was Borsch's meteoric rise as a designer in 2018 that helped put Ganschen over the top. I've chosen Wolfgang Walsh and Ganschön Clever, which is German slang for that's really clever, over Alexander Pfister and Oh My Goods for the 11th Game Changer because of the immediate effect, the success and influence it had over the past two years. Walsh himself has gone on to release two standalone sequels, Doppelt so clever, which means twice as clever, and Hoch drei clever, which means what you think it means. Um which reintroduced the complexity he'd originally had in the base game. All three of them are now available as apps as well. He also released Bricks, which turned the classic video game Tetris into a roll-and-write, and succeeded as far as I'm concerned. But Ganshun's claim to being a game-changer is evidenced by the number of top designers who sat up, took notice, and turned their hands to the roll-and-write genre. Phil Walker-Harding returned the favor of inspiring Varsh with Imhotep by designing Silver and Gold. Uwe Rosenberg released two roll-and-writes, Patchwork Doodle and Second Chance. Ignacy Churacek put out a roll-and-write version of his Imperial Settlers. 
Durkheim published an Alhambra roll and write, and the old doctor himself, Rainer Knizia, turned his classic bidding game Medici into one as well. Soon enough, other designers realized that dice were not the only randomizers that could be used to power this mechanic. French designer Benoit Taupin pioneered the flip and write with his 2018 game Welcome 2, in which players took on the role of neighborhood planners using a pool of flipped cards to decide exactly how to improve their rows of houses every turn. Chad Deshawn from Kansas City took a classic old math problem called The Traveling Salesman and turned it into the flip and write on tour. And Brazilian Jordi Adan turned players into cartographers with his game of the same name. And still the genre was not done. Colorado's Rob Newton designed the first flick and write with Sonora, and the design team of Scott Huntington and Sean Graham, who both currently live in Hamburg despite being born elsewhere, designed a roll-and-cut game called Clip Cut Parks, in which, you guessed it, you cut up pieces of paper to assemble your own park. Since 2018, Wolfgang Varsch has continued to design and release games aside from sequels to Gantscher and Clever and the Mind, including the well-received Euro Taverns of Tiefenthal and the party games Subtext and Wavelength, of which the latter has done okay in North America. Time will tell whether Varsch will be able to top his early successes. And so, I bring an end to this all-too-brief survey of Neurogames. There's no question in my mind that European designers will continue to explore the frontiers of tabletop design, and yet, for all its presence, influence, and popularity, the neuro design aesthetic is not the last word in tabletop. For all their variation from designer to designer and nation to nation, neuro games are remarkably consistent in their approach in terms of their general emphasis on mechanics and gameplay over theme, as well as the four themes they tend to return to again and again. Merchants and businessmen from various eras, Tolkien-style fantasy, ancient civilizations, and science fiction exploration and conquest. As of this moment, 7 of the top 10 and 18 of the top 25 games on BGG use one or more of those themes. Such dominance can't help but reflect a uniformity of mindset and taste of both designer and audience. Until recently, this uniformity, if acknowledged at all, was taken as fixed. But our final game changer has shaken up that status quo. Its success has proven that tabletop audiences are more than happy to play games that tell other kinds of stories, and want to see themselves reflected in those stories as well as in the people who tell them. That was part two of episode 12 of The Game Changers. I'm David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And don't flip that table.